Gordon, and I'm here today with Jacob M. Appel, and we are talking about his story, The Frying Fin. Um, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited. I have read almost all of your books. I don't know if I've read them all because you have... It's now 20. Oh my gosh. I'm so... <laughs> really? That's That doesn't amazing. mean they're all good. That just means that they're... <laughs> I always say quantity over quality. <laughs> right. That's fascinating. So how many are there? Um, how many fiction? How many nonfiction? So I have one essay collection and one collection of bioethical conundrums and a poetry collection and the rest are all fiction. Okay. I've read those, the two, but I haven't read the poetry collection. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm way behind, uh, but I've read, I would say five or six of your books. And this is the... Um, this story appealed to me, well, first of all, because it's online and accessible and we like to have people read the story beforehand and deconstruct it with us. So um, that was one appealing part of it. But the other part was that it seems to be like a historical fiction, which I didn't think you did in at least the other four or five books I've, I've read. Uh, so I was really interested in that because it's you also wrote it prior to 2004 when we didn't have as much access to Google. And so I was curious how you came up with the idea of setting a story in the 1940s during the war. Sure, so I always try to, whenever I write a story, I try to sort of push my imagination away from where I was previously. And it's compounded by the fact that I'm a psychiatrist. So anything that may be grounded in the reality of some of the stories my patients share, I obviously can't share, so I need to really push myself in the opposite way. And I was talking with, with someone, I, I won't embarrass them on, on radio um, or podcast, but that it would be great to find a, a story in, in a very obscure cultural niche that there isn't that much accessible in. And I think this person jokingly said, well, there aren't very many Finnish American stories. It turns out there actually are many Finnish American stories, but at the time I didn't know that. So I figured I would write one. I have no connection to Finland. Um, I actually have some limited connection to Finland now that I wrote the story, but at the time, I Finland could have been the other side of the moon to me. <laughs> right. um, the well, you did it. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I fooled someone because several Finnish organizations over the years have asked me to read the story for them under the impression that I'm Finnish. Oh my Finnish god! <laughs> always leads to a very awkward conversation. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's because some of the details, you absolutely think there's no way that someone from who wasn't from Finland could ever come up with this. So what about, so why did you choose, and I'm I'm probably going to um, mess this up, but is it Esu Finland or how do you say it? Esu? How I, I do mean, you... I, I'm not even going to pretend that I speak Finnish. <laughs> yeah. So how did you choose that location though? It's, yeah, I mean, I guess I just started reading about Finland and it's sort of down the rabbit hole in the library and start with the encyclopedia and then you get books about visiting Finland and um, suddenly you think you're a Finn. Right. <laughs> well, it starts out with a really cool concept of Sisu. I mean, let's just we'll pretend that's how you pronounce it. Uh, very roughly translated means extreme fortitude in the face of insurmountable odds. And that is apparently something that Finnish people revere. And one of the things I really like about the term is I, I'm fascinated by words that 
can't be translated well into other languages or fill a niche that other languages don't have. Maybe it's growing up with a Yiddish background and are all the Yiddish words that sort of mean things, but really don't. Nachas is not good luck in Yiddish, but it's almost. And I, I always think there's a line in a James, in James Joyce where he sees three Gentiles having a spinning contest. And the character refers to this as Goyam Nachas, which is something that Gentile good luck, but it's not <laughs> really that. Um, right. But it always amazed me that Joyce could capture this translation of something that was not his cultural background. So I sort of tried to do the same thing with Finnish. Mm-hmm. I imagine somebody listening to this who is Finnish will say, I have utterly fouled and write me an angry letter. But in the interim, I'm going to delude myself in saying I did the best I could. Right. And I, I want to come back to that because it comes back again in the end. But I'll, I'll wait a second because um, I think it, it can be interpreted so many different ways. Um, and obviously that comes through in the story too. Is it a good thing or a bad thing to have Sisu? He goes to, so basically, and do we ever get his, I don't think we ever get his name. I mean, we get his last name. I, I think we do get his last name. I don't think we get his first name. Okay. Yeah. Um, so anyway, he goes to, and he is stationed in Tampa, but before then he already has four children. He's married his wife, um, Lily, uh, spelled L-Y-L-L-I, and he has four children by the age of, I wasn't quite sure. I, I don't think he was 16. You know, he was older, but. Yeah, I mean, he's think. older for a World War II soldier, but he's still a young man. Right. Uh, this is a man who's still learning in life, which is part of what makes the story work. Right. And I thought it was, um, it's interesting. So he gets, you know, he leaves and I mean, he's married her because she's beautiful. And obviously that's very um, compelling to a young man. Um, But then he comes to Tampa and he meets Sue Ellen. And there's something that's completely different that's appealing to him about her. And I noticed that Lily is sort of embarrassed to speak Finnish or she wants nothing to do with being Finnish. And the first thing Sue Ellen says to him is, you're very lucky to be Finnish. I mean, were you just thinking in terms of immigrants, like you'd want to be, you know, someone might want to be proud or is there something particular about being Finnish that people are very proud of their culture or? Well, I think there's a combination of both. On the one hand, like, I think I think of my, my grandparents mm-hmm. and I, my grandparents were amazing people. I love them dearly. But my grandmother was not the slightest, my grandfather was actually from Belgium. And my grandmother was not the slightest bit interested in learning how to speak Flemish or French or in learning a bit. For her, he arose whole cloth the minute he landed on American shores. Anything that happened before that was his business. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet I think there's something really appealing about being exotic in your own circle, if that makes sense, about having something that you bring to the table that other people don't have. And Vertanen here, I think he, uh, he really, he's proud of being Finnish. And he doesn't really fully understand why other people want to assimilate and abandon what they came from. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of a universal immigrant experience for, for many people. Right. And is that, uh, there's something about the lexicon, like, so in Finnish, do you speak in a Yoda-like manner with the, <laughs> with the sentence structure reverse? Because Sue Ellen says to him, I'm from Finland you are. And, and he seems to love that. Is that... Um, and he had said something earlier in which the sentence structure is reversed. I tried to capture the diction of a language I don't speak, which mm-hmm. is the language I don't speak as translated into English. Which mm-hmm. is challenging. Uh, it doesn't help that, that Finnish is not a your Indo-European tradition. It's, it, it comes from its own family of Finno-Ugric languages. Right. It makes it more alien to me. 
Yeah. I will confess, although I never tried to learn Finnish, I did try to learn Hungarian um, when I was dating someone from Hungary for a number of years. And it was out of a Finnish, and I utterly failed. Right. <laughs> yeah, my my son is uh, polyglot, but he said Finnish is almost it's is very tough for him. So I so, think I, I may have a Finn who speaks with the diction of Hungary. But right. I'm always reminded of that line in Fitzgerald that they spoke French as though they were trained in Romanian. And, <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully, I mean, most readers wouldn't notice if we weren't de- deconstructing this story. So, uh, but it's good to know that, like, so when you stepped out of your comfort zone in this way, back then, we weren't talking a lot about cultural appropriation or anything like that. And I, I don't think, I mean, I think when you, it's done well, when you can barely tell, um, and that, and when it's an exploration of a different region, it, it feels okay to me, but I, I'm wondering how you feel about it, looking at it now. from this Sure. So, so I think it's, it's a complex question. Mm-hmm. On the one hand, I think there are cultural groups I would not write a story trying to portray the voice of. Um, I don't think there's a long systematic history of excluding Finns from American literature. Although right. well, I could be wrong, but in my extensive reading, that does not seem to have come up. Um, so I don't feel like I'm taking someone else's space or void in that sense. Um, and I feel like if you're engaging in someone else's culture, you have to engage meaningfully rather than glibly. And I spent a very long time trying to capture this culture. I spent months and months working on the story. I think I just sat down in front of my computer one day and said, I'm going to write a story about a Finn. That would be deeply problematic. Mm-hmm. Oh, so let's talk about that. So, okay. So how, what, how did you go about researching it then? Before um, I, you started writing? And I will confess, I wrote this story probably about 20 years ago now. Which was I know, and I apologize for that. <laughs> Not at all. Um, okay. So take everything I say with a grain of salt, because it's hard to know what is true and what I've imagined is true. And writers <laughs> lie anyway. But I totally I, get it. I do remember I obtained a list of maybe 500 Finnish expressions from a book and tra- that were transferred into English. And I determined I was going to try to find enough of them that fit well in the story to give the story a Finnish flavor. And you'll notice the story is peppered with some of them that are identified as Finnish expressions and some of them simply that are thrown in his thoughts that happen to be Finnish expressions. Yes, I I did notice that. And I thought a lot of them were, they were very profound. There was one that really stuck out to me. If you cannot find peace within yourself, it is useless to look elsewhere. Um. Yeah, so that, that, that is definitely a, a Finnish expression as I understand it. I, I will always add, I could have been duped entirely by my research. Uh, maybe somebody made a list of fake Finnish expressions and put them in a real Finnish expression book. To my best of my knowledge, these are all Finnish expressions. It's always possible who originally the person who translated them or put them in a book got them wrong. So I always take that with a grain of salt. Um, I think if I were doing this today, I would probably double check with someone from Finland to make sure that they were accurate. Okay. Well, it's interesting. You also have, you know, you have about the dinners that take place in Finland. In the dinner in the fatherland, that meant dinners of bark bread and poisoning Karelian bear dogs to keep them out of the hands of the Russians. Research obviously extended to research about the war, Finland during the war. Oh, yeah. No, I, I read far too many books about Finland. I, I would say I became somewhat obsessed with Finland for at least a three month period. And then after you wrote the story, then did you think, well, maybe I should write a novel about this because I have, I know so much about this era and these people. Actually, I thought, because I, maybe I have a warped mind, I thought, well, you know, I don't want to write another story that is too close to, to Finland. So my next story actually is about a man trying to learn Norwegian. Oh, my God. 
yeah, just to challenge yourself more. I challenged myself was- and just make sure I wasn't getting my, my wheels caught in the same ruts. And um, so I sort of feel like you, you shouldn't do the same thing twice. Mm-hmm. So Sue Ellen's um, fiance comes back and his um, and her fiance is waiting for him in the library and he takes him out on a boat and then he drags him across the water and um, he causes a lot of damage. He's in the hospital for three months. And I was just wondering if any of those details came through your, I know you're a physician and you work in an ER. Any of those details come from, you know, your work or. I mean, I'd like you- to think they're all medically accurate. I mean, I, I do, I work in a, an emergency room and um, I was actually a trainee at the time. So I was much more attuned to the nuts and bolts of, of emergency medical care. I actually, I believe I had just finished rotation at a trauma hospital. So mm-hmm. that was probably very much on my mind. We would see accidents from the highway and boating accidents. Um, so I can't say I set out to base this on a particular experience that someone suffered, but I mm-hmm. did remember seeing numerous trauma cases coming in from the Long Island Sound, from I-95, and it probably played a subconscious role in my thinking about how I shaped the story. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because you have the such great details of my body slammed the water like a hammer against an anvil. The rope nearly wrenched my arms from their sockets several times. I considered releasing my grip, drowning painlessly, but I held tight. And what do you think, I mean, if if you can remember <laughs> that far back, what do you think compels him, you know, to keep going? Because, um, yeah, go ahead. I mean, not, not wanting to sound like a Finn, but I, I think Sisu is really what does it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this, he, he comes to embody the stoicism that he associates with his home nation and he proves to himself at least that he has it. And while many other people would be distraught by this experience, he finds, I guess, pride in it. Though I think the, the real Sisu is not su- surviving the physical attack. It's mm-hmm. been the choice he makes to not return and disrupt Sue Ellen's life afterwards. Right, right. And then that is the last line. So that is the other half of Sis- uh, Sisu, the hard jaw. This is the last line of the story, sorry. Th- that is the other half of Sisu, the hard-jawed courage that keeps you from doing what you want. That lets you forsake your own happiness. That is the part of Sisu, the part of my story that native-born Americans never seem to understand. Which is true. That's just a cultural, it it feels true. I mean, it feels like, you know, during the war or times of hardship, we aspire to that a little bit, but I don't know how many Americans could actually follow that path. I mean, I think the the happy ending here in the American movie is that he runs off with Swellig and they end up happy ever after. Right. Uh, and, and his experience is not just that the right thing to do is to stay with Lily and support his four kids and not disrupt Swellig's relationship with her fiance, but he can actually take a certain pride in doing that as the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And you leave it open-ended, which I love, you know, for the reader to think about whether that's um, a good ending or a bad ending. I mean, both of them have their drawbacks, right? One, he ruins a bunch of people's lives and one, he ruins his own life, I guess. I mean, I don't know. What do you think about it? I mean, I, I always tell people I'm a bioethicist by training. That's what I do most of my, my right. I'm doing. So almost, if not all of my stories raise the ethical questions, but they don't answer them. Um, they right. them out there for people to think. And I, I always tell people my job is to ask the questions, not to offer the answers. 
Mm-hmm. Right. I know. Darn it. I know it's so exciting to have like the author on and I know I really want the answer, but I do realize that the best part about this is to think about it yourself and like, and I will add, I'm, I'm not sure there is an answer. Like there are times when I think one answer is the answer and times when I think the other answer is the answer. I, I remember it's, it's John Fowles. Um, people would ask him about the ending of the French Lieutenant's woman. Mm-hmm. And he, he got so fed up with it. He would give them different answers based on what, how they asked him and whether he liked them or not. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I mean, there is no, yeah. It seems like there would be no concrete, correct answer to that question. Right. Yeah, and I, I think it, it's something about um, maybe American or Western consciousness that we so crave an answer to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe in Sisu, you don't even need an answer to that question. Yeah, maybe. Right. That would be, a um, yeah, it would be a like a beacon to follow throughout your life, no matter what the situation was. Yeah, I mean, I... I, think, I mean, I, at least in the end, you would always know who you were. I mean, I, I think Vertonghen is, is a man of character. I mean, mm-hmm. I, beyond being a character, actually, I think he actually, at least to himself, he, he's acted virtuously. Um, right. I think he's a lot, which is not yeah. true of any of my characters. So, Right. Well, that's okay. So I, I wanted to ask you, um, in terms of this story, so you've kind of told us how um, it came, you know, the, the seed of it. But when you're writing other stories, are you often motivated by, you know, a chance to explore a bioethical concern or idea, or are you thinking about a character or a scene or something else? Sure. I I think the defining feature of my stories, and maybe it's because I'm a psychiatrist, is they Mm -hmm. all are about characters who are walking very close to the edge. Mm -hmm. And they're just, little push could push them over the edge and their lives could fall apart. And the question is how they react to that. Do they, mm-hmm. Are they able to write themselves or do they topple over? And if they do topple, how do they respond to their lives decompensating? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's the ethical dilemma in one form or another in all of my stories. Mm-hmm. Would you um, go about crafting a story um, and have all the details? For instance, you have the details of what like Tampa looks like in this, you know, 1943, and how it looks to walk down a certain street in 1943 in Tampa would you write the story first and then go back and fill in those details? Or do you need to have it all before you start writing? Oh, I definitely need to have it all before I start writing. And I, I am very much my mother's son. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother, um, who is a, a very active, if not voracious reader, um, grew up in the South Bronx. And she is still upset because there is a description in an E.L. Doctorow novel. I can't remember which one of the block across the street from where she grew up. That is inaccurate. That describes the wrong stores and wrong locations. And she actually wrote to Doctor of several times in her frustration. <laughs> so I have, right. I have internalized that. There will be somebody out there who is unhappy with something you've written unless you get it right. Right. Do you remember how you found out what Tampa looked like in 1943 without the internet? Um, I know I spent a lot of time in the public library. Mm-hmm. Um, and based on other stories, I'm sure I looked up pictures of Tampa and maps of Tampa. But yeah, so I, I often do that, though. Now the internet makes that much, much easier. Um, right. But I guess the internet also makes it easier for someone to post a fake map of 1940s Tampa and fool me. Mm-hmm. And now this is off this the subject of this story, but I was curious about how many times locations come. Now, I know that Crevcore, is that how you say it? Crevcore. Yeah, comes back so many times in stories. How often does that 
I mean, how long did Crab Court go on? I, 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 I saw it through one whole book. Is Were there other stories in other books? I just... Oh, yeah. I would say there are about 40 to 50 Crab Court stories. Wow. All of which are, are some fictionalized version of a, a city in Central Rhode Island that is sort of like Providence, mm-hmm. where I used to live. And, and like, what was compelling about, you know, I heard um, Jeffrey Eugenides say that uh, when he wrote Middlesex, he, you know, was so fascinated by the main character and wanted to concentrate his imagination completely on the main character. So he set the story in his hometown with, you know, a group of um, Greek immigrants, you know, his family members were Greek. So he didn't have to work at all of that. So is that sort of the same idea of you set a story somewhere you're familiar and then your imagination can take off from there? Oh, no, I actually do the opposite. I mean, I maybe it's because I grew up in a, a bedroom commuter suburb. Um, mm-hmm. I always think of that, uh, that Hemingway quote about Oak Park. It was a town of wide lawns and narrow minds. <laughs> right. maybe, that, maybe that's a bit harsh. But I mean, I always say the town I grew up in, if you died in the Sunday, nobody would ever find you. Uh, <laughs> right. And so maybe setting stories in other places is, and doing research about those places gives me much more fodder for writing something interesting. Okay. So what, um, what compelled you about Crab Cora for so long then? Um, so, I mean, having gone from a bedroom suburb to Providence, okay. I mean, for most people, Providence may not seem like the most exotic place on, on earth, but compared, compared to a small suburb in Westchester County, Providence could have been Calcutta or Rome. So, <laughs> right. so that's what okay. it's the community and interesting culture. So I sort of latched onto that in a way. Um, mm-hmm. and, and then from there, I branched out to other places that um, as I returned to writing about more fictionalized suburbs, um, which I've realized have a much darker side than I realized, um, I've created towns that are suburban that are similar to where I grew up. Got it. Okay, got it. So it's uh, not a long story, and yet you you do such a good job of establishing how important Sue Ellen is to him and you know how much he's losing when he gives up the relationship. So in general, when you think about, you know, as a, as a psychiatrist and you're writing a story, how do I establish the importance of a certain relationship to a character? Do you feel like it's relating, you know, dialogue between the characters or, I mean, do you have, <laughs> I guess what I'm saying is like, do you have a formula for how to establish a connection between characters? What do you think well, is I, the most good? I think that's a great question, but I, I, I think I always like to say the, the image I think is a helpful one is to make stories of this work, you want to have two magnets that mm-hmm. you bring together and they slowly get closer and closer and suddenly they repel each other or pull apart. And that's the kind of relationship you want to build, but it only works if you have them connecting before they pull apart. So, I mean, you, you, can, you should never start a novel with a divorce or a funeral, I always say, because we don't realize what we've lost. Mm-hmm. But, but the other half of that is to build moments of tension. If somebody says, will you marry me? And someone says yes or no, there's no tension. But if you create a distraction in the middle, the longer that distraction lasts, the more tension there is. Until you reach a tipping point, you forget about the original concern. But you have to find that. So I ask, will you marry me? And then a horse-drawn carriage comes by and distracts us. Um, or at the end of Anna Karenina, she jumps toward the train and we follow her handbag rather than her. And then we realize she's been killed. Things like that. It's right. tension in the middle that keeps you going. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you established, you know, like in this particular story, Lily is very beautiful, you know, established on page one. Sue Ellen has that way of like sort of um, 
she has the waist length hair and everything, but she's sort of half pretty, you know, that's, so we know right away it's, it's different there and that she can handle the silence that he appreciates and the, and, and it does sort of like that, the fact that they can sit there in silence, you know, immediately you're realizing, well, the, the silence has to be filled up with something like the silence is a container, which the reader can fill up. Yeah, I mean, the advantage I have, unlike in real life, in real life, you have to take your partner as you find them. And as a psychiatrist, I can say you, you may be able to chip away at the edges, but you can't remake them. But mm-hmm. in a story, I, if I want to have the less than perfect wife and the ideal partner who is given up, I can make the ideal partner truly ideal for this particular person. I can make them like uh, substrate and enzyme or lock and key, which I mm-hmm. think I've done. I hope I've done. Right. Yeah, you definitely you definitely did. I, I'm always interested or trying to figure out why it is that, you know, sometimes what makes people perfect for each other is is not something that you can easily, easily identify. You know what I mean? So in a story, to convey that is extremely difficult. I yeah, no, I, mean, I, I would never want to marry either of these people. No, no, <laughs> I wouldn't either. So afterwards, he... You know, go. I mean, you imagine his the rest of his life. He's just living with the seven kids. What do you think uh, happened to Sue Ellen? Because I was a little concerned about how violent her fiance was in that situation. I mean, I, mean, I think that's part of the. I'm um, not only has he gone back to the. I wouldn't say wrong match, but less less ideal match. Mm-hmm. She's gone back to some deeply unappealing match, um, right. at least from an outside perspective. And part of his strength is not interfering. I always think it's sort of like you go back in time and you see things that you want to change, but you can't change them because they'll damage the future. That's sort of what he's doing. Right. He knows enough not to break what he can't fix. He's doing the right thing in terms of Sisu, you know, for being a man of character. But if you think about it from her perspective, (laughs) it might not, you know, it seems to me like someone should rescue her from that situation. Yeah, and it's, it's also layered, though, over cultural context in the sense that he's probably writing this story in the 1950s or 1960s. He's looking back mm-hmm. on, on a life 20, 30 years later, um, mm-hmm. which is still not our contemporary worldview. I think if you, if you were writing from today's point of view, that would be obviously much more prescient. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Well, um, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Thank you so much, Jacob. I appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. Anytime. 